COVID-19 was bad for the planet, bad for democracy, and bad for healthcare. And it dramatically increased inequality. Between 2019 and 2021, the wealth of the top 0.001% grew 14 times more than the global average. But COVID-19 didn't just exacerbate economic inequality. There have been plenty of social consequences, too. The social and health impacts on women were particularly bad. The UN reports that one in two women say that they or a female that they know has experienced violence since COVID-19. Women also picked up a larger share of the domestic burden during the pandemic. Managing unpaid work like household chores, shopping, childcare, or cleaning. Women's labor force participation also declined, with more women taking time out to care for children or manage their households during lockdowns. Against so many inequality and empowerment metrics, women fared worse than men as a result of COVID. The shadow pandemic is the name the United Nations has given to the rise of violence against women over the past year. And the COVID pandemic isn't just a healthcare crisis. It's also a women's crisis. Before the pandemic hit, for the first time ever, there were more women in the workforce than men. And now statistics show we are back to the late 1980s levels. The gap between men and women in the workplace is widening around the world. According to the International Labour Organization, women have been hit harder than men by job losses during the coronavirus pandemic. But now what? Do these lost equality gains matter? Are they important to our societies? And will gender equality really help us build a world that is more resilient? And is it even related to health? That's what we're here to talk about. From DAI's global development team, I'm Megan Howe, and you're listening to Unburdened, where we give our cut on global health issues that go beyond healthcare. For our first series, we ask, can gender equality make us healthier? Over the course of five episodes, we'll explore this question in depth, look at some of the barriers to equality, examine how to approach gender in development programs, and speak to experts and academics for their take on how we can build a healthier and more equitable world. But first, we must define health and equality to understand how they relate. On this episode, we zoom out, so next time we can zoom in. My first question is, what is health? In general, I think the WHO definition of health as well-being and not merely the absence of disease is a really good starting point. That's Paula Quigley. She's a DAI consultant who hails from the Emerald Isle and currently splits her time between Italy, Jordan, and Germany. She's a medical doctor and has decades of experience in public health, working throughout Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. I think the main shift that I have seen over the last 30 years is really the shift away from a more reductionist, if you like, uh, focus on diseases um, to a much more holistic um, approach on well-being in, in, its, in its widest sense. And I, there's a huge recognition that health is not just the product of the health system, which is, you know, the, the, the governance that surrounds health in a country or globally and, and the, the institutions that fall below that. So there's a huge recognition that the, the formal health sector and the health facilities is only a very, very small part of what drives health and well-being. When we think about health, we might think about our insurance coverage, our most recent hospital trip, or even our personal choices, what we ate today, how many times we've been to the gym this week, 
But health is actually more than what we make of it. It's what's around us. Increasingly, global health practitioners are becoming more attuned to external, non-health or non-medical factors that dramatically impact our lives and our well-being. The, the main things recently that have uh, are driving the global agenda is the recognition, firstly, um, of the need to prevent disease outbreaks like COVID, the COVID pandemic. That was earlier flagged through, you know, Ebola and some of those other SARS, some of those other um, outbreaks that happened over the last sort of 10 to 20 years. You know, the world's attention, if you like, was really focused on, on, on this as, right, we need to work together to prevent these kinds of things happening in future. And that entails bringing in the animal world, um, you know, the whole One Health approach, um, because we know there's crossover between animals and humans and that is hugely affected by um, the environment. So that's one. Um, you know, uh, I think the other, another issue, of course, is climate. Um, the whole relation between climate and climate change, and the the stresses that climate change is putting on our our, our food systems, our environment, um, our ability to produce food. Um, and then the the third issue is conflict, and how that is um, affecting health. And the latest. Example of that, of course, is the crisis in Ukraine, um, where the you know they're a huge product producer of wheat and cereals that is now being blocked, um, and and is really putting the world's uh, feeding the world at risk. We call them the three C's: COVID, climate, and conflict. Are are really driving the global health agenda? COVID, climate, and conflict aren't the only big factors that affect our health. Education is another huge factor. Data empirically links health and education. The most highly educated people have better health and a longer lifespan than those with less education. So many factors impact our well-being, from where we live, to the air we breathe, to the food we are able to buy. To give some definition and boundaries to our understanding of health, metrics and measures can help. You know, the typical indicators are life expectancy, newborn, child, adolescent, um, and, and then in general mortality rates and what people are dying of, what kinds of diseases they're dying of. So those are the big, the big indicators. But then I would say the critical ones are things like adolescent um, pregnancy rate, adolescent fertility rates. So again, those kinds of indicators that really focus on well-being in, in pregnancy, childbirth and first two years of life. Those are critical indicators to show that a society, I would say, is healthy. You know, a healthy baby becomes a healthy child, becomes a healthy adolescent, becomes, and if it's a female, becomes a healthy um, mother. <laughs> um, and then the, the whole cycle starts again with the baby. So if you, you know, you can, you can address any of those parts of the cycle, but if you don't address them all in one way or another, you know, there's that you will have a break. It, it really is a continuum. And we need all of it to be good, to have really healthy societies. In summary, good health isn't just about our personal choices or the absence of disease. It's about our well-being. And as such, it's impacted by a myriad of non-health-related factors. We can put boundaries around our concept of health by looking at common indicators like life expectancy, maternal mortality rates, adolescent pregnancy, or others. Now let's take a look at where quality fits in. My name's Jackie Muller-Larsen. My background is a bit mixed, actually. It's um, sociology, social research, public health, and um, then more latterly been working in global health 
both living and working in a number of different uh, countries in uh, Africa and Asia. Equality is quite a a broad term, (laughs) and probably uh, many people use it in different ways. How can we define equality and maybe put some boundaries around it and, um, yeah, sort of clarify the way we're talking about it? Broadly, I think equality in societal terms refers mainly to uh, the equal uh, um, distribution of resources and opportunities among people in society. So if you like, the reverse of that can be seen when resources are not equally shared and people don't have equal access to opportunities. And there is actually a a very common metric that's used for comparing inequality in different countries. And it's the Gini coefficient, which measures, you know, the concentration of wealth and income in a country. And in a way, you can say it kind of measures the gap between the richest and the poorest. South Africa for example, that's got a very, very high uh, Gini coefficient compared to, say, Scandinavian countries like Iceland and Finland. But uh, to be honest, what's also interesting is that even countries that have similar Gini coefficients, Sweden and East Timor, for example, have very similar coefficients. But in terms of the quality of life that people experience in those two different countries is is very, very different. So what does the Gini coefficient measure exactly? Certainly what it's trying to measure is um, the concentration of wealth within a country and um, the proportion of the population that experience that wealth. So they're trying to measure the income that exists within a country and where it's concentrated and the proportion of people that are experiencing that wealth. And I think that's why, I mean, it's useful, but it's also limited in that it doesn't take into account some of the broader influences like social, cultural and religious belief systems that can also um, have a very strong influence on inequality. While at first glance, we may look at inequality as something purely economic, The concept of inequality is complex and multifaceted, just like the concept of health. Economic inequality is one aspect, but more insidious structural inequalities around gender, race, or social class also impact our societies. You know, understanding inequality, if you like, really needs to be contextualized for any meaningful comparisons to be made. You know, we know that inequalities exist between countries, within countries, and even within and across social groups. All of these things tell us that inequality is very systemic and it's entrenched in various socioeconomic and political structures in our societies. And and also the social and cultural and religious beliefs that we have, as well as the values, if you like, that underpin our society, all influence um, the degree to which there are inequalities. Global inequality affects all of us no matter who we are or where we're from. It's just whether or not, you know, people can really see that and understand that. And it it creates a distance between people. And that distance generates distrust, social conflict and crime. And that's, you know, at, at the community level. So there is really increasing evidence to show that if we, you know, continued inequality and poverty stifle the ability of a country to develop. So for developing countries, inequalities will continue to hold them back. It will continue to hold their GDP back. 
But there is clear evidence to show that in so many ways, it's really bad for all of us. It's bad for everyone. And I think that's the mindset that we want to nurture. Over the past several decades, there has been extensive research that suggests that more equal societies are healthier and happier. For example, if you were to plot a group of countries on a graph, societies that are more equal tend to live longer. Economic inequality has a direct impact on our health, but so do other forms of inequality. You know, when we think of health, often people think mainly about access to health care. Um, and of course, that is critical. Um, but in actual fact, it's, you know, these non-medical or social factors that influence health outcomes the most. Um, and, the, you know, these are often referred to, if you like, by the social determinants of health, the conditions that people are born into, that they grow and work in and live and, and, and age. Uh, these are the things that actually um, affect people's health. You know, it's estimated at the moment that these social determinants of health can influence up to 55% of health outcomes. Addressing the social determinants is really fundamental if we want to improve people's health and reduce long you know, these very long-standing inequalities and inequities in health. And that's where we're headed with this series, exploring gender equality as a social determinant of health and how it can improve or reduce well-being in society. To focus our discussion, we're using the Gender Inequality Index as a framework. The GII is a tool developed by the United Nations Development Program, or UNDP, that measures equality according to three dimensions, health, empowerment, and the labor market. In our next episode, we'll speak to UNDP about those dimensions and what they mean. But for now, let's hear from a Chilean researcher who used the GII to evaluate the relationship between gender inequality and population-level health outcomes. She and her colleagues looked at trends between gender inequality and health after trawling through 27 years of data from OECD countries. That's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, with 38 high- and middle-income member countries. Uh, my name is Cecilia Veas Palominos. Um, I'm from Chile. And... I'm a pharmacist, uh, it's my profession. We want to know how gender was related with some parameters like uh, life expectancy, years of healthy life, years of life loss, years lived with disability. And that was uh, the, the aim of that study. We, we have to choose OECD countries because these kind of countries have similarities. And when we have inequities in another areas, but the social and economic inequities are deeper or are higher, uh, the other inequities uh, can, can seem to be no better, but they are. And that's the importance of these results. Social science studies are notoriously difficult because it's hard to isolate the main variable under investigation. A host of additional factors can impact the results. Studying gender inequality and health is no different. Although correlations can be made, there are many variables that can affect our health, and therefore it can be difficult to meaningfully isolate a single factor. Typically, political or economic inequalities can overshadow the impacts of other type of inequality around race or gender or class. To mitigate this problem, 
Cecilia chose to focus on OECD countries, which have similar development indicators. This allowed the team to better isolate gender equality and look at this variable on its own. The study used common metrics and indices to compare population-level health and gender. The health metrics included things like life expectancy, years of life lost, which measures premature deaths from illness, years lived with a disability, which measures the number of years lived with an illness that has affected your quality of life, and disability-adjusted life years, which measures the burden of a disease or sickness based on mortality and morbidity. Gender metrics were taken from the Gender Inequality Index, which looks at gender parity across economic, political, health, and education domains. Here's Cecilia again. We use uh, the Gender Inequality Index to measure gender inequality. This index uh, has some limitations because it doesn't include intersectionality that is important to understand this phenomenon. And doesn't include either gender, neither uh, gender identity. Findings were surprising. We found that gender was related uh, with these uh, parameters of population health. And that was surprising by itself to me. Obviously, I hope I found that, but it was interesting to see that. <laughs> Uh, and in what's interesting too, so the impact of improving equity will have a greater impact on the health of men than and, and women. Across the board and over time, the research showed a negative correlation between gender inequality and population level health outcomes. In other words, societies that were more gender equal were healthier. Most surprising was the revelation that the health of men, on average, improved more than the health of women in more equal societies. Cecilia says one hypothesis to explain this relates to social norms. Her study cites additional research to back up these claims from another independent study. But as an example, gender stereotypes of masculinity can be associated with things like violence, sexual risk-taking, or not seeking medical attention promptly. In more gender-equal societies, these sorts of behaviors are likely to decrease, thereby improving male health and longevity. This result suggests that reducing gender inequality could improve health outcomes at population scale. And this supports the needs to develop gender-sensitive public policies for the benefit of all society, incorporate a gender perspective in all policies and programs will promote healthier societies. Cecilia's research is a clear demonstration of the links between gender equality and health. And while results of the study might not be directly transferable to every country around the world, these findings are an important step in helping conceptualize how gender inequality can contribute to healthier societies. Health is not just the absence of disease, but it's our whole well-being. That means for communities to be healthy, we need to think about big non-medical factors that impact our health, not just healthcare or our personal choices. Inequality is one such factor. Research shows that unequal societies, either economically or because of gender, are typically less healthy. And most strikingly, men can reap greater health benefits than women where there is greater equality. In short, gender equality can make us all healthier. Next time, we'll look at what makes men and women unequal, how we measure parity, and explore how factors like culture, biology, politics, and power contribute to health. So stick with us. Thanks for listening. Unburdened is a DAI production. 
check out our show notes for the links to the research we used in this episode. If you liked the show, leave us a rating, or you can get in touch with me, Megan Howe, on Twitter. For more information, visit our website at dai.com slash unburdened dash podcast. See you next time.